We're in John 3. We're reading passages that are preparing us for Good Friday and for Easter Sunday. John 3.16. Even if you've never read or studied the Bible at all, you know John 3.16. It's most famous, the most famous words in all of the scriptures, for God so loved the world. And, and John 3.16 has become something of an American cultural icon. And we've seen People at sporting events holding up the signs behind the goalposts at the football game. Everybody knows John 3.16. I dare say that hardly anybody, hardly any Christians, know or understand the context of John 3.16. Here it is, beginning in verse 13, where Jesus says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, or one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's only begotten Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what he has done has been done through God. Amen. Think back for a minute to your days in high school English class. Do you ever remember reading through Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness? I think I was a junior in high school going through AP English, and we read through what has to be the the most boring of all... Literature, Heart of Darkness, the story of an ivory transporter as he makes his way up the Congo River into Central Africa. And at that point in my life, reading, my goal in reading was basically find the plot and move on. (laughs) I was not into, like most juniors in high school, literary analysis, trying to delve into every little piece of literary symbolism and thematic Minutia, and it seemed like we spent years on Heart of Darkness uh, discovering what the fog on the Congo River must symbolize. All of that symbolism for a junior high school guy was a bit too thick for his taste. Isn't it interesting how we change? I mean, now when I read the Old Testament and then I come to the New, I am enthralled by all of the symbolic, the the literary analysis levels of dealing with the scriptures. I love studying and seeing how the old becomes significant in the new. And today's passage is about as good as it gets as far as that's concerned. 
Numbers 21. That is the passage that Jesus refers to in verses 14 and 15. I want to read it to you. Numbers chapter 21. The children of Israel are making their way around the desert through the wilderness, and we read, Surprise, surprise, they became irritable and cross as they traveled. They spoke out against God and Moses and said, Why did you drag us out of Egypt to die in this God-forsaken country? There's no decent food here. There's no water, and we can't stomach this manna stuff any longer. This is the paraphrased version of it. (laughs) So God sent poisonous snakes among the people. They bit them, and many in Israel died. Then the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned against you and against the Lord when we spoke out against you and the Lord. Pray to the Lord for us. Ask him to take these snakes from us. Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Here's what I command you to do. Make a snake and put it on a flagpole. Whoever is bitten and looks up at the snake will live. So Moses made a snake of copper, and he put it on the top of a pole. And anyone bitten by a snake who then looked up at the copper snake on top of a pole, he or she lived. And so I was thinking about it. We have juniors in high school here today who have no interest whatsoever in you know, literary analysis of the Old Testament. And we have very concrete mathematical thinkers Engineers who have no interest in, in things like this, what I want you to know is that I have prayed for you. <laughs> I have prayed. No, truly, I've prayed that God would make this deeply and wonderfully profound. All right, let's begin. What is going on in Numbers chapter 21? As I read, the children of Israel are in the middle of the desert, and there's not a natural food supply to sustain their lives, so God sends this stuff, which they end up calling manna. Manna was a resin-like substance that you could use to, it'd be kind of like flour that you would use to bake into your bread. Based on what we read in the Old Testament, the the manna was relatively sweet in its taste. So if you were to bake it into your bread, your bread might have tasted like sweet bread or or Hawaiian bread. It It was a sweet gift of God. Manna was a daily provision from God, a miraculous daily testimony of God's commitment to his people. Manna was his way of saying, I love you, I love you, and I will take care of all of your needs. Manna was their lifeline in a dry and weary land where there was no water, and they grew to detest it. They hate it. And so God sends these, uh, these snakes. Tim Keller asked this question, understandably so, because he's up in New York City and he's dealing with a very secular audience, but it's the same kind of question that I think modern readers in Boise, Idaho would ask, and that is, when you read Numbers 21, what is your knee-jerk response? 
What is your knee-jerk response to the fact that God sends poisonous snakes against his people? The modern reader hears that and they say, overreaction on God's part. Divine overreaction. Yeah, they probably did something wrong, but the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Divine overreaction. God sends snakes into the desert. You say, well, why not scorpions? Or why not spiders? Why in the world would he bring, send poisonous snakes? But when you read it in the Hebrew, and I suspect that they would have noticed this, the word used for snakes is literally fiery serpents came and struck them. Fiery serpents. Oh, okay. Now we begin to understand what's going on here. So you go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are there. And what do they have in the Garden of Eden? They have everything. They have everything they need. Food, daily provision of food, um, unblocked access into the presence of God. They have every provision of paradise that you could possibly need until a fiery serpent comes and tells them that's not enough. God's not being fair to you. You need more until a fiery serpent comes and poisons them with spiritual discontentment to the point that access to God and access to God's food is, is not enough to that, for them. That's what's happening in the, out in the desert. God is trying to teach. I mean, think about it. You've got several million people. How do you teach a spiritual lesson to an entire nation of people? A spiritual lesson that they are being destroyed the same way as their human ancestors were. You send fiery serpents to strike them with poison. And it's God's way of saying to them and to us that if if my commitment to you to supply bread from heaven is not enough for you, then nothing will be because this is in your veins. Isn't that interesting? No GPA will be good enough. No job advancement will be good enough. No cute boyfriend. Nothing will be enough inside of you if this is inside of you. It's an ancient commentary on how spiritually discontent we are as human beings. Now, Keller, when he was preaching on Numbers 21, goes on to make one additional point. And he says, yeah, yeah, still, okay, he's trying to make a spiritual point. But still, isn't it a little extreme to strike them with poison and, and kill a large number of them? Is, is God killing people indiscriminately? Isn't, isn't that wrong? And he says, remember that he is God. He knows each one of us inside and out. And because he is God, he's able to deal with every single person and give every single person sufficient time and opportunity to turn back from the folly of their ways before, before they die. He's able to deal with each one of us individually and fairly. So, so don't get too worked up about that. The matter still remains that this is the poison that is inside of them and you. If we believe what is happening here on Sunday mornings, I've told you before that Jesus says he comes and and meets with us 
we are given divine access into the presence of Jesus. We get on Sunday morning heavenly food, you know, food, bread, manna from God, bread from heaven, and it's just not enough with us. We're still so discontent. Even having God, and we, we still want something else. One of the ways you know that you want something else is you can look at problem emotions in your life. And so when you're angry, ask yourself this question. Is there something that I am being blocked from having, something that I think is a necessity, and I'm not getting it, something I must have? Or when I'm fearful and worried, is there something that's being threatened, which I think I, I, is vitally important, which I must have? Or when I'm despondent and hating myself, is, is that why I'm so down? Because I must have this thing that I'm not getting, and I, and I think I need it, but I don't need it. The most basic question to pose to your heart is, has something, has some poison you know, taken me captive? Something or some, someone besides God, have they taken me? Am I looking to that for life-sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? That's the problem. That's the poison. What's the remedy? Well, God goes to Moses, and he says, here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to create one ginormous graven image, a huge representation of, of a snake. That, that's very strange on, on several different levels. One, it would make a lot more sense if God simply provided to them pl- a plant, much like the manna, that they could go out in the desert and pick the, the leaves of this plant. They would pound up or crush the leaves of the plant into a paste that could be applied to the snake bite as like a topical ointment. Or he could provide a plant that they cook up in some stew and a kettle, a potion that they would that they would drink, and that would be the anti venom. Or even a pill. God could have started the pharmaceutical industry <laughs> millennia before. Of all the bizarre ways for God to provide medicine, it's this one. I should say it's a dangerous way. As you read along in the Bible, you discover that the the children of Israel ended up keeping this snake graven image. They actually gave it a name. Its name was Nehushtan. It was worshipped by later generations until, as you read, I think it's in, is it in Kings, that King Hezekiah ends up ultimately destroying the snake. But, I mean, they worshipped it for hundreds of years. Of course they worshipped it. They lived in a culture where everybody worshipped graven images. That was the, the water that you swam in. Everybody was looking to uh, little amulets or images to receive magical healing. And, and that's why one of the Ten Commandments is, God says, thou shalt not create any graven images. He knew that this was going to be a major stumbling block, a major piece of temptation for them. And yet, nevertheless, knowing the fact that they could be, that they could stumble over this. He must have had compelling reasons in order to do, to do this. What are some other alternatives? Well, he could have put 
a lamb on the top of a pole. A lamb on the top of a pole. Or he could have used any old sacrificial animal and lifted that up. That would seem to make a little more sense. Look up to the lamb or look up to the ram or the goat or the bull. Some normal sacrificial animal would have made a little bit of sense. Nobody ever sacrifices snakes in the Bible. Maybe I belabored the, belabored the point. Why a snake? By looking up to a snake, they were forced to see the very thing that was killing them. By looking up to a snake, they were forced to see the embodiment of this is what is destroying you. Look at it. Do you see it in all of its grotesqueness? I mean, presumably, Moses would have taken this pole and he would have set it on one of the hills or on the outside of the camp. Do you see it in all of its grotesqueness? That is what is killing you. Did they get it? Did they ever make the connection? I can't imagine that they did. But God is an amazing author of the story. And like good authors, they'll always put something at the beginning of the book in order to return to, return to it and explain it at the end. Did they understand it with the snake on a pole thing? <laughs> but surely we do. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Apostle Paul, he explains it to us. He says, God made him sin who knew no sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. By those words, the Apostle Paul is not saying that Jesus Christ became sinful on the cross. We know that he was not a sinful man on the cross. He is not up there cursing at and raging at and yelling epithets at those people, at his accusers. What was Jesus doing on the cross? He was praying with his last dying breath. He's praying for those who kill him. He doesn't become sinful, but he does become sin. In other words, he takes upon himself the legal embodiment of our sin. Have you ever ever wondered why it was that God had to subject his son to such a torturous form of death. Because when you look at a man on the cross who's the embodiment of your sin, you see it in all of its hideousness. And that, friends, is the wisdom of God. Three short points. Number one, this foolishness is the wisdom of God and the power of God unto salvation. Uh, I mean, come on. What could be more foolish than a fever-stricken, swollen person dying of poison, looking up and seeing a, a hideous monstrosity on a pole on the top of a hill? What could be more? What could be? That's got to be the stupidest way I've ever heard of saving anybody's life. Exactly. Never forget how crazy, stupid, ridiculous the cross must sound to non-Christians out there. Every bit as ridiculous as us reading Numbers 21 and them going through it. it. 
The violence of God that he could have his own son lifted up and crucified, a monstrosity on a hill that people could obtain eternal life that way sounds like sounds like Numbers 21. Number two. This foolishness also happens to be the greatest sign of God's love for, for human beings. If you're here this morning and you are, you, maybe you're spiritually searching, maybe you're an agnostic, most people are interested in, in, in having, receiving a sign from God. In fact, that's one of the ways that a lot of us actually read our Bibles. We'll ask a question of God, like, God, should I ask Betsy Lou to marry me? And then we'll you open up our Bibles and we'll turn to randomly a verse, 1 Corinthians 7.36. It says, they should get married. And you're like, voila, a sign. <laughs> then you ask another question of God. God, when, when should we get married? And you turn to John 13.27. What you're about to do, do quickly. <laughs> But we have this, we, we're always, we're all looking for a sign from God. Usually it's this like, magical token that we're looking for. The sign from God that you've been given, the sign of God's love is on the wall behind me. <laughs> why would somebody, why would somebody rechu- uh, choose not to receive that love? Think, work with me here. It's astounding to contemplate. As astounding as this is to contemplate, some human beings will refuse the gift of perfect love. That's astounding. They refuse to welcome Jesus Christ into their lives. They they choose to reject the Trinitarian God of eternal love, the creator of the universe who gave his only begotten son in order to give us eternal life with him. That then helps explain all of this word, these words of condemnation that Jesus speaks about in the latter part of, uh, of chapter 3 here. Here's the connection between God's love and condemnation. Anyone who chooses not to receive God's love and invite him into their lives, they've chosen to exclude themselves from heaven by that very choice. They have, they've chosen to refuse God with us in love, both in this life and in the next. And that's why Jesus says that they are condemned. He actually says that they are already condemned. But number three, why would a child of Israel refuse to look up? I mean, if you don't have to run out and, find, and pick plants and turn it into a, a medicine if all any child of Israel has to do is to run out, is, is to go out and look, why would why wouldn't somebody do that? Why? The only answer that I could come up with that seemed credible, the only person I can imagine who wouldn't look, is the person who didn't realize they were bitten. I mean, I grew up in Arizona. I've I've uh, run around in the desert and cactus at night you'll inevitably run into bushes and get scraped, run into cactuses and, and get pricked. If it's in the dark, you don't know that it's a snake bite. If they stay in the dark, notice the light-dark motifs in the passage. If you stay in the dark, you may not know that you've ever been bitten. 
They didn't know it. They probably never realize it until their body goes numb and they become paralyzed and then they're out of their minds insensible. Then, it, then it's, likely, it's likely too late. The reason you didn't look is because you didn't know you had a problem until it was too late. Jesus gives one additional answer to why that might be. I guess I just sort of touched on it, but it's verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. A lot of times when people refuse to acknowledge the existence of God, it's it's because they they don't want there to be a God. They understand the implications of there being a God, that if there really is a God who created me, who knows me, who's provided for all of my life, like every single meal that has ever been on my table, every piece of clothing that I have has been provided. If there is such a God, then, then I probably can no longer continue to live for myself, but I would have to live for them. And they don't want that to be the case. They don't believe in God because they don't want there to be a God because they love the darkness, Jesus says, instead of the light. Friends, this is the good news from John 3.16. All you have to do is what? Is look. Martin Luther, he, he gave this definition of faith. Faith is nothing else but a sure and steadfast looking to Christ. All you have to do is look. You don't have to run out and find or make your own medicine. All you have to do is look. And here's a story about that. To close. Charles Spurgeon, you might have, you probably have heard his name before. He was, probably, he was the greatest of the Baptist preachers in the 19th century back in London. At one point in his writings, he tells how he was converted. He was a teenage man, spiritually searching, and he was visiting churches on one Sunday morning. It was actually January of 1850, and a great, enormous snowstorm had blown into London. He was on his way to go to his customary church. When the storm was so great, he ended up turning aside into a primitive, primitive Methodist chapel. He walks into the church service, and there are only like 15 people there, and the pastor is missing because everybody's been snowed out, including him. He goes on. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they, they gave you a headache. But that didn't matter to me because it was snowing outside. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, this is a man who has not prepared a sermon at all, but without any preparation, he opens the Bible to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. So the shoemaker begins his sermon. He says, This is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look. Now, looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. A man needn't go to college to learn to look. 
You may be the biggest fool on the planet, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand pounds a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. I, but now the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves. It's no use of looking there. The text says, look unto me. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried and risen again. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. Then, lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. And he looked straight at, so Spurgeon says, he looked straight at, uh, at me and he says, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And Spurgeon says, I probably had heard the gospel a dozen times faithfully preached, preached in my life. But on that night, God opened my ears to hear and my eyes to look. And he did. The foolishness of God is the wisdom of God unto salvation. Jesus Christ makes the clearest correlation possible between this serpent and himself being crucified. Just as looking to a bronze serpent was a foolish way of healing poison, so looking to a crucified Savior is a crazy way for contemned people to be saved. And you know what? It works. It worked. People say, is is God real? I want a sign from you. Here is a sign, and here is the prayer. Heavenly Father, I am afflicted with discontentment. I know that I know my sin. I know I've rejected you. I've taken all of the gifts that you've provided me, and still they weren't enough. I want you to take your rightful place as master of my life. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. Please forgive me and send your spirit to make me a new person. You guys, you know, I don't do altar call sermons with any regularity. You know, come on down and let's pray the sinner's prayer. But this is John 3.16. <laughs> and it's this prayer, this, this simple prayer of, how, of becoming a Christian is, I dare say, the right prayer for one or two of you to pray today. It is. If you feel the Holy Spirit so leading you, I'm going to pray, pray this again. I'll give you time to like internalize each line of but I, but pray and come and look and believe and be saved let's pray heavenly father i am afflicted with discontentment i know my sin i've rejected you I have taken all of the gifts that you have provided me and still they weren't enough. I want you to take your rightful place as master of my life. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. Please forgive me and send your spirit to make me a new person. 
Amen.